Hello and welcome to Lightmap from SIFTA. My name is Gianni. Thanks for joining us on another conversation uh, with a video game creator. My co-host on this episode is Mitch. Thanks for being part of this episode, Mitch. Hello, uh, thanks for having me. On Lightmap, we explore what it actually takes to make video games and interactive media. And we talk to creative teams from all around the world. It's a guide to those interesting new gameplay experiences. And every episode, you get to meet new developers, artists, musicians, researchers, and more. Our guest on this episode of Lightmap is Mark Filion, from, uh, who's the creative director of Chinatown Detective Agency, a nostalgic, uh, especially for me, I've played a lot of this sort of games back in the, in the 90s. Uh, it, it's a story you've got to unfold uh, across the world as you piece together a puzzle set, partially in Singapore, but all around the world as well. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for being part of this episode. No, folks, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to do this, especially um, considering that you, you, know, you guys are fans of the genre, fans of the inspirations behind the game. <laughs> And Mitch, you've got a bit of a personal connection to Singapore as well. Yes, my family's from Singapore. Yeah, so we can't, I can't wait to uh, check it out. So let's find out uh, first what the been making the news on the latest episode of Walkthrough. Hi, I'm Kyle Paletto. And I'm Gianni De Giovanni. And here are the top stories this week on Walkthrough, Sifter's weekly news podcast for Sunday, 5th of May. Escape from Tarkov developers relent, allowing access to PvE mode for players who bought an all-DLC bundle, but not before saying, sorry, you're mad. Solo-developed Manor Lords and indie city builder break sales and Steam records. Take-Two shuts down studios behind Kerbal Space Program and Oli Oli World. And we wrap all the cool things announced at ID at Xbox. You can get every episode of Walkthrough for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and on our website, sifter.com.au, every Sunday. Lightmap, interesting conversations with video game creators. What is Chinatown Detective Agency? Sure. So Chinatown Detective Agency really is a product of, um, well, my fandom of the old uh, Carmen Sandiego um, um, series of games. I grew up playing those games. My, my mom, so when I was a very young boy, we moved to Dubai. I'm from the Philippines. I was born in Manila. We moved to Dubai. My mom used to work at this company that sold um, um, Apple Macs. And one day she brought home a really, really old uh, Macintosh. Um, and pre-installed in that computer was the very first uh, the very first version of Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego. It was the very first um, non-console uh, video game that I ever played. And it captivated me the way you needed to know real-world knowledge in order to progress in the game. Um, for folks who might not know, Carmen Sandiego requires you to do real research. The game originally ca- um, came with an almanac, like a real reference book. It came with It came in the box. So you had to figure out things like, um, you know, capital cities, um, the currencies used in those uh, in 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 foreign countries, um, historical facts, stuff like that. Um, as the years progressed, um, I had always wondered why nobody had ever used that mechanic in modern games. And Chinatown Detective Agency is sort of a marriage of my love for those classic point and click LucasArts Sierra uh, games from the '90s and the Carmen Sandiego's um, um, unique mechanics of you know, having to do real world research. So Chinatown Detective Agency 
is a um, neo-noir, um, hard-boiled detective, point and click. But what makes it unique is uh, you'll need to either Google or if you still use encyclopedias and almanacs, perfect. Use reference books in order to fi uh, figure out answers to puzzles. Um, and that's basically how you progress through the story. Um, you're bringing up a lot of memories for me because we actually had those world book encyclopedias and i remember when i was playing come in san diego i'd run to the shelf and try and pull them out and find what the answer was and they were from the 1970s so like a whole had a whole bunch of things about like the ussr and a bunch of other stuff that was out of date now um but some of those things were still um quite relevant and I, i'm curious about that um you know getting people to sort of leave the game or, or use their phone to find out more information about that um it's 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 an interesting thing. You don't see it in a lot of games, as you said. How did you sort of balance it so that people weren't literally just Googling a whole guide and were really just searching for the information required to solve the puzzle rather than a step-by-step? -step? Or was that not a problem for you when you were thinking about this game? Well, um, it was a balancing act. Um, first off, we knew that getting folks to uh, do real-world research was going to be very polarizing. Uh, we set out knowing that you're either going to love it or you're going to hate it. And if we're going to work with a mechanic like that, let's let's really you know let's let's really go with it. Let's really stick with it. Um, so what we've done is we've created this character named Mei Ting. Um, so Chinatown's Active Agency is set in the uh, set in twenty thirty seven in the year twenty thirty seven in a future world, and Mei Ting is one of the last human librarians in Singapore. Um, and Mei Ting plays a crucial role in the mechanics of the game because if you ever get stuck. You can call Mating and she'll give you a hint or the solution to the puzzle. So folks She's my favorite, by the way. She's great. Um, she's um, the energy of the character was really um, uh, brought on by the uh, voice actress Kim. Uh, made her really bubbly, very friendly. Um, but yeah, it it we know some players will play the game for the story and they don't really want to spend too much time hitting a brick wall. So Mating is there to sort of help you along. In terms of the actual um, balance of difficulty that wasn't very easy to do because uh, we wanted to make sure that um, it progresses nicely so you don't get too discouraged in the first few levels in the first few missions it's relatively easy information to find online but later on without spoiling too much things get a little bit uh, more challenging uh, you're going to have to research very ancient languages you're going to have to know certain um, um encoding and decoding uh cryptography um stuff so um i think it progresses very gradually and kind of um lets you warm up to the mechanics of the game before you know throwing you know throwing the big puzzles your way i wanted to ask you about the the setting of the game it's uh, it's set in singapore and that's not usually a place that we go to in our games can you tell me why you decided to set the game there. Sure. Um, so I've been living in it's, it's seven years now. I've been living in Singapore for seven years now, and the first thing that struck me about Singapore about living in Singapore is this would make a really good setting for a Black Mirror episode. It's it's incredibly you know it's it's very futuristic. It's very advanced. Things run very smoothly, um, but the human interaction with that. Um, order and technology and, um, you know, um, um, strict laws um, kind of lends itself to really cool, you know, the oft, wor uh, the oft used word is dystopian, right? It, it, it lends itself to a lot of that dystopian storytelling. I thought setting a hard-boiled futuristic story in Singapore would be perfect. 
Um, in fact, during the production of the, uh, sorry, during the development of Chinatown Detective Agency, they shot one of the seasons of Westworld here, which was, which, which was, which was, you know, which was a perfect place to, you know, to shoot something like Westworld. Um, there's, it's, the city's got a lot of history underneath all of this modern glitz. Um, it, it takes very good care of uh, preserving that history. And um, as you know, Chinatown Detective Agency, um, you know, depends a lot on um, on things like history and art and um, just just general trivia. So it was a perfect setting for Chinatown Detective Agency, we thought at least. And uh, at least, you know, we think that it um, panned out pretty well. I felt while playing the game, there is a tension in this of modern Singapore with the, the government and uh, and big business. Uh, and it felt like it had sort of been extended out into a you know a future world where some of those systems that we, we rely upon um, aren't at the same standard that they'd be expected today. Even the MRTs, for example, right? The MRTs are graffitied and they're covered in all sorts of scratches and broken things. And if you went to Singapore today, you wouldn't see that happening. Can you tell me a little bit more about sort of exploring a bit of uh, the the cultural context of Singapore as a place as you sort of uh, develop this this science fiction version of of a city just in the not too far future? Sure, absolutely. It, it was a lot of fun doing that. It was a lot of fun imagining Singapore in a future world where government fund, you know, government, you know, the coffers have have run dry, um, government services are failing, um, you know, things are just kind of on the brink of chaos. It was a lot of fun imagining a world like that because it is so far removed from what Singapore is today. It's, you know, it's a well-oiled machine. Um, So, you know, thinking about things like what would happen tomorrow if Singapore's police force like had like one tenth of its budget, like what would happen to law and order? What would happen to its transportation system if, if it was privatized by like, you know, mega corporations, um, so a lot of the world you see in a lot of this, a lot of Singapore, beg your pardon, a lot of Singapore that you see in Chinatown Detective Agency is almost, um, it's almost like the complete opposite, the complete extreme of what it is today. And it's sort of reflected in the attitudes of the people you meet, um, in the game. Um, a lot of the people have a very, you know, pessimistic outlook. A lot of people have, have a very dark, greedy um, I'm only out for myself kind of perspective, which uh, pretty much runs contrary to that, um, you know, cliched perspective of uh, the collectivist, um, you know, the collectivist Asian culture, um, which 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 to a, which to a relatively high degree is, is very much true, especially in places like Southeast Asia. So exploring those themes of the relationship between the people and technology, the people and their government uh, was a lot of fun to do. There are also, um, you know, one of the things I noticed as well, the places that you visit often have layers of colonialism in them as well. You know, even when you go in the early missions, um, you're visiting uh, places uh, like Istanbul, uh, which was a French colony at one point, you know, and all of these different pieces. And you're talking about Beirut, which was part of French colonies and, and layers upon layers on that. Can you tell me a bit about how a place like Singapore, which is, of course, used to be part of the uh, the British Empire uh, and is now its, its own country. Um, talk about how those layers of, of history sort of shaped the story you wanted to tell. I think it did to a very large degree. I, and I think it, and it was, for all intents and purposes, intentional. Um, the, um, at least in our minds, um, especially the writing team, we wanted to tell a story of, um, you know, the effect of colonialism on history, 
um, the effect of colonialism on on on, on countries and their people. Um, you know, not not so outwardly, but at least in hints of the world building. Um, one of the things that I really liked, um, and Rick Godwin, our narrative director, helped me write this, um, was in one of the story arcs, because fortunes have sort of changed, you know, the tables have turned. In the world we imagine, um, East Asia is sort of leading economic power, whereas uh, mainland Europe has sort of stagnated through the years through a combination of things like, you know, like uh, political unrest and, and the ongoing pandemic. So... One of the main themes of uh, one of the story arcs is that um, Europe is running out of artifacts because private buyers from Asia keep buying things like their paintings, their sta- you know the, the 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 works that defined um, you know periods like the Renaissance are all being siphoned out of Europe and into the hands of private collectors in in Asia, which is a parallel to what happened during the colonial era when a lot of the treasures and artifacts in places like um, Africa and East Asia, even the Indian subcontinent, um, South America for sure, would be um, taken back to Europe to be displayed in these grand, beautiful museums like the British Museum. Um, so we thought that was a lot of fun to do because it's, it's you know, draw, uh, drawing this parallel reality in the future of that happening um, but with the tables turned, felt like a really great way to, you know, to show the impact of colonialism, e- even economic colonialism, on you know, on the world around us. Um, so, what we also did was in every location in every city you can travel to, there's a little, there's a little information icon on the top right that you can click on, and it'll show you a little bit of the history of the city and a, a short timeline. So, you know, in the 19th century, this is what happened to Paris in 2000 and something. This is what happened, you know, to, uh, uh, um, to San Francisco. And then we put in um, a fictional future events that take place in the, 20, uh, in the later 2020s and 2030s that, again, um, sort of um, play around with that location's history um, a little bit. So it was a lot of fun to do that. That's that, you know, just the world building process was was probably the most enjoyable aspect of making Chinatown. Can you tell me a little bit about the art style as well? Because there's obviously, there's that rooted in the history of the place of where it is, but it's obviously got those futuristic uh, bits uh, woven into it as well. Was it as simple as just slapping a bunch of neon on, on everything and kind of getting to the future? Is that how it worked? Or, or what were the considerations about designing a, a, a world that felt real? Well, um, you know, slapping on that neon uh, um, veneer was definitely important. Um, but uh, th- that's all the work of Ricardo Yuham, our art director, based out of Brazil. Brilliant artist. He works with pixel art um, exclusively. Well, not exclusively, but like at least in his involvement in the video games industry, he's known as a pixel artist. And each one of those locations, each one of those scenes um, was was basically handcrafted and he would use a combination of references. Sometimes he would use photographs that I provide him because, you know, we live on opposite sides of the world. So I take pictures of Singapore, send it to him. Sometimes he'd use Google uh, street view. (laughs) And sometimes I believe there was one city that he made. I think it was Delhi or I can't remember. It was one of the cities. Um, He was able to get a good perspective, a good view of it, a good, a good angle of it by playing a flight simulator. So he flew a plane in flight simulator over the city 
took the snapshots he wanted, and then that was his reference for that place. And and it's it's done pixel by pixel. It 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 takes a lot of time to create one scene. Um, and what you'll also notice is some cities um, will reflect their current economic conditions. So again, we imagine some cities like say London or or Boston. Um, will will show a little bit of um, of a derelict side, you know. Uh, um, some buildings will be dilapidated. There's um, you know there's 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 visual poverty, uh, visually apparent poverty in the foreground. Again, as a reflection of the current state, to make it believable that you know that this is the year 2037 and this is you know this is the new reality that Amira, the main character, is living in. You touched briefly upon the voice acting of the game earlier and um, one of the main comments i keep reading is oh my god there is a there is a legit authentic singaporean accent in like the first two minutes of the game um can you tell me a bit more about your choice of voice actors and 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 the choice to actually have voice acting oh gladly um so it was non-negotiable to have um actors from um countries uh, where the fictional characters were origi- were um, originally from. Hey, brought you a little gift. I don't drink, Justin. Oh, keep it in a cool, dark place and away from reach of children. Who knows, might be worth something one day when we finally run out of wine. So all of the Singaporean characters are voiced either by Singaporeans or Malaysians. Um... The Japanese characters voiced by a Japanese actor, the Russian characters voiced by a Russian actor. Um, so we wanted to make sure it was authentic as possible. Oh, and Leticia, an Australian character, is voiced by an Australian VA artist. Um, so we wanted to make sure that was authentic because um, it's 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 almost at a meme level, um, at least for gamers in Asia, how some how just how badly. Um, Asian characters are voiced sometimes. Um, I don't know if you remember, Mitch, but Bolo Santosi is like the you know the gold standard of of this um, you know of this um, of of this really badly acted Asian um, video game character. So we wanted to make sure that the actors and actresses that that play these characters were from you know were from that place. And also, we like to use colloquial uh, colloquial language a little bit. So you'll hear a little bit of Singlish. You'll hear a little bit of Malay. Uh, even the Russian <laughs> character will swear in Russian. Those nuances can only be captured if your um, if your uh, VA knows what they're you know knows 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 how to deliver that line accurately. It was something really uh, good to hear because you hear the variety of different accents of a place as well. Like Superintendent Co speaks with a Singaporean accent, but has a different accent to Rupert, for example, both Singaporean characters talking about like that. So, And I found as well, when you hear Letitia, who is Australian in that, you hear an Australian accent that sounds more like you'd hear on the streets in Australia versus than what you'd see in TV and film, because quite often it's very over the top. It's very Steve Irwin, uh, Crocodile Hunter, and Letitia doesn't sound like that. She sounds like someone who's been to university and runs a company, and that sort of makes sense for the character of who it is. Can you tell me, are there some other examples you've got of, of places uh, or, or, or telling the story that where authenticity was really important uh, to you outside of those examples that we've kind of touched on? Sure. Um, it's, in, it's in the missions themselves sometimes. So um, one, of the, um, one of the story arcs uh, involves a megachurch. And um, 
Asia in general is notorious when it comes to their relationship with the mega church, with you know, with these large institutions. Um, and and I hate to say it, but a lot of them are for profit, for profit religious spiritual institutions. So um, that story arc was sort of inspired by things we see not just here in Singapore, but they're big in places like the Philippines and South Korea, and you know, and 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 all these other locations in Asia as well. So that story arc is based on. Um, a scandal that happened in Singapore um, concerning a megachurch. And, you, you know, it's really funny. I think I know what you're talking about, but yeah, go on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I think you do, Mitch. I, I mean, it's so, so it involved a very large megachurch um, using its funds for things um, that are obviously inappropriate. Um, uh, that was sort of the inspiration for the story arc as well is that there's this megachurch that was wielding its power um, in uh, very inappropriate ways. And it speaks so much to an Asian gamer because they see it every day. A lot of these um, institutions are so mired in scandal that seeing it in a video game is sort of like, you know, that's, that's just the way, you know, that's just the way Asian society is sometimes. So even in the structure and plot of the missions of the story arcs, you will see a you know slice of life um, of Asia in there somewhere in the little details. The game itself feels both nostalgic um, but modern as well. And I'm curious, you know, there are some parts of the way that it's designed which really feels like it's taken straight from the '90s. Can you tell me about that sort of balance between having something that feels like those old school games that we would have played, um, but also modernizing it for an audience that would be playing it instead on, you know, on a controller, which uh, you know a lot of people might be playing it on Game Pass, for example, versus uh, you know the keyboard and mouse we'd be familiar with. Right, for sure. I mean, um, so, um, and I think. You know, I think you'll notice this, Johnny. the The UI is straight out of Carmen San Diego, for one thing, um, because the UI just just kind of um, is instantly recognizable. So we thought that was a nice homage, you know, to the you know to those classic Carmen San Diego games. Um, <laughs> old school uh, point and click adventure games from the nineties are known for their clunky UI. Like most of the time, the UI will take up just so much real estate, and we wanted to embrace that. We felt that there's a way to do that tastefully without you know without um uh, without serving as an obstacle to the enjoyment of the game um things like the ui things like your your staples of point and click where um you know you you need to click every single uh, space within the screen to make sure you didn't miss out on an object you know these are all things we remember doing um and we wanted to make sure that it felt like this is something lucas arts would have done but at the same time, we were very conscious of the way games are played these days. At least in the PC version, there's a button in the bottom panel that opens up a web browser immediately, so you don't need to alt-tab out of the game. You simply uh, you know, press that button, brings up your web browser so you can do your search, you can do your research. Um, even for um, the console versions, um, so we worked with a porting team called Knights of Unity who've done just a heroic job of... Um, you know, porting it to a um, controller-based platform. Um, point and clicks are notoriously difficult to play on a controller, but somehow they've done it. Um, and because it's so dependent on UI, you know, bringing up Windows, bringing up, um, you know, like your your inbox, um, pressing buttons and bringing up different interfaces, 
Um, fitting that all into a controller was a real challenge. And we went through several iterations of, um, you know, of, of different combinations of key mapping of, sorry, of, um, of mapping it to the buttons on the controller until we eventually found, you know, just a sweet spot where it worked quite well. In all honesty, I still think point and click games should be exclusively be played on the PC. It's just, it's, that's just a personal belief. But um, making sure that it was accessible to a larger uh, group of players was very important to us. So when somebody said, can you port it to Xbox or to Nintendo Switch, um, it took a few days of soul searching. But we eventually said, you know what, if it means more people are playing it. Um, I'm just curious, the game's out, people are playing it now. What is the thing that you're most proud of uh, in this game that you look at and just go, that's excellent work. I'm so glad we put that in this game. Gosh, there's there's so many things I'm happy about, um, from the praise of the writing and the art to just folks like literally spending some of the um, you know some of the uh, reviewers we've encountered on Steam have been playing the game for 27 hours. Um, but I think the one thing that I'm really proud of that's very weird is that it sort of changed Google Auto Detect, um, Auto Complete. Um, so. I don't want to spoil it, but there's this one puzzle that involves, and the answer to that puzzle involves a series of numbers. And if you type those series of numbers on Google, um, if you type in enough numbers, the, fir- the first um, auto-predicted result is the answer to that puzzle. So the game has literally changed the way Google works in its little way, in its own little way. And I'm really proud of that because, you know, we never imagined people would embrace something like this. It's 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 uh, it's certainly polarizing. A few folks have found it incredibly tough to deal with. Um, you know, some folks some folks simply don't like it. But you know, you got to do something brave. Um, you know, we set out to do something bold. We set out to kind of reinvent the genre um, and not necessarily please everyone. And um, we're quite happy with the end result. Kids these days don't know how good they've got it, do they, Mark? <laughs> Back in the day, you had just struggling to play these games. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Are are you a little worried, Mark, that possibly in the future this game will become a bit too easy because of that modifying of the algorithm? That's a great question. Um, So by now, if you start Googling that stuff, they'll just show results of walkthroughs. Um, And we never, I suppose we never really put a lot of thought into it. Uh, You know, it's hard to predict. It was very hard to predict exactly how it would affect the algorithms, how it, you know, how it would affect your Google search results. Um, but it's my personal belief that if a person was really into the game, if the person was really immersed and they really wanted to experience the game, they'd skip that. You know, they'd, they'd, they'd go straight to their Wikipedia page or they'd, they'd filter out the, um, uh, the results that would, you know, straight up give them the answer. Um, and, you know, and, and that's the hope. And we're completely okay with that. Uh, it's called Chinatown Detective Agency. It's out now. You can play it on Game Pass uh, or you can pick it up on, on Steam. Mark, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Lightmap. It's been a real pleasure to hear a bit about the uh, the intention behind this game. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you for having me. Sifter is produced by Nicholas Kennedy, Fiona Bartholomeus, Daniel Ang and Adam Christou. Mitch Lowe is our senior producer. Thanks for being part of this episode, Mitch. No worries. Always happy to be here. 
And my name is Gianni Giovanni. I'm the executive producer. Thanks to Omni Studio for their support of Sifters 3 Podcast. You can find links to the games that we've talked about on our website. That website is sifter.com.au. And read more about the games and the guests that we've featured in the show notes as well of this episode. You can also join the Sifter community. Uh, it's a Discord server. That's sifter.com.au forward slash Discord. Um, it's where we uh, share our creative work. Uh, you can talk about video games, uh, talk about what you're doing, or just, you know, have a chat to other people who are interested in indie games and gaming um and also uh could you please share the show it's the number one free thing you can do to support us uh the word of mouth is really important to indie podcasts like this one so let your friends know if you think they'll enjoy it and uh, send them a link to make it easier for them to take part in the show and we'll love you forever for it that's all for now thanks for joining us again mark thanks so much guys it was really enjoyable and see you on the very next episode of light map Bye. Chris Button here from Drop Rate, Sifter's video game review podcast. Unicorn Overlord might have a strange name, but don't dismiss its tactical prowess. It uses a, a tactics mode, um, and, which is similar to the Gambit system that was in Final Fantasy XII for your um, uh, your squad mates. And you can say, okay, well, you know, Hodrick, who's my legionnaire with the big shield, I want him to prioritize protecting the back row. They're going to take the most damage. If they take a physical hit, they're going to go down, but I need them to be protected. So you can get quite granular with this, and I reckon you could build some pretty wild builds that are <laughs> totally game-breaking, um, but it's kind of the fun of the tactical squad-based gameplay in Unicorn Overlord. Tune in to Drop Rate to find out why Unicorn Overlord might just be one of 2024's sleeper hits. Available now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts.